For some of you introverts, you were hoping this would, that would never come back, I know, but uh, back on Easter at least. Let me pray, and uh, we will get into God's Word. Lord, you're good. The truth that Jesus is alive. We thank you for that fact, the evidence that we have of that fact. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate today. And we thank you that in the end, not only is Jesus raised and we can press into that truth through the power of your spirit today, but one day you will also come back in glory. One day we will be with you in paradise where there will be no more sin and no more suffering. But until that day, we live as believers in Jesus, as people who live in the power of the resurrection. And Lord, I might pray for one here this morning who doesn't yet know you through your son Jesus. I pray that you would do your work in their hearts this morning, that they might see Jesus for who he really is and see their need of him before you. Lord, we thank you for time. We pray for time in your word. We pray that it would be clear. We pray that the gospel would resound this morning in our hearts and we would look and be convicted of areas in which we need to learn and grow. But we thank you for a morning where we can freely gather to open your word and learn from you. We thank you that you grant us your word, that we can know your very words from your word of truth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life is filled with good news and bad news. It's filled with good news and bad news almost every day. If you're a Baylor Bear here this morning, you've got some really good news. Your team's going to the championship game. If you're a Houston Cougar, I'm sorry. It's just been a really bad year in Houston sports. All together, good news and bad news. Some of it's as silly as that. You make the team, you don't make the team. You get the job, you don't get the job. You get the test results that you want, you don't get the test results that you want. Good news and bad news. What's the hard news in your life today? Or this week, or this year, or this month? What's the good word in your life today? See, some good news is more important and more significant than other news. And some bad news is more significant and important than others. Today we've got some great news. It's Easter Sunday. Easter is all about good news. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 through 8. And we will see the good news of Easter here in this text this morning. It's page 961. If you need a Bible, it's on the end of your row, page 961 in the, in the Bible on the chair there. Also, just so you know, there's bulletins on the end of your row. And if you open up the middle of the bulletin, if you're new here, there's some notes there. If you like filling in blanks, um, for the sermon, if that helps you follow along, then we've got that for you as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 8. You can't hide the truth in the book of Corinthians. Uh, this church in Corinth, this Greek culture, was having some troubles. They, were, they had a lot of bad news going on in their life. They struggled to live out their faith, perhaps like you and I do. And so at the end of this letter, Paul opens opens the letter, he finishes the letter with some good news. Some good news that would help this struggling church. He's got some good news for the forgetful. He's got some good news for the sidetracked. He's got, got some great news for the guilty. He's got some good news for the skeptic. And last, he's got some good news for 
the fearful. And it's news about the gospel, the very good news that Christ has died and was buried and rose again. Are you ever forgetful as it relates to your faith? Do you ever often get sidetracked as it relates to faith? Do you come here this morning needing forgiveness as a guilty person before God? He's got some good news for you this morning. Do you come in here with a lot of doubts as a skeptic? And doubts about the cross, doubts about the resurrection, doubts about the Christian faith. There's good news here for you this morning. And maybe you know Jesus here this morning and you're just fearful. You're fearful to live in the crazy world that we live in. There is hope. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read it, verse 1 through 8, it'll be on your screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, and we'll see the good news. There's probably no place in Scripture that the good news of the gospel is clearer than right here. This is Paul to the Corinthian church. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's the good news. For I delivered to you as of first importance, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, there's Easter, in accordance with the scriptures, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the people last of all. He appeared to the one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Speaking of Paul. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us some good news. The first of that news is this. For the forgetful and for the sidetracked, there's clarity. For the forgetful and for the sidetracked, there's clarity. Look at the clarity in which Paul speaks of in verse 1 there. He said, I would remind you. I said the Corinthian church was really off the mark in many ways. They got their priorities wrong. They really were messing their Christian life up a bit. Let me just recall some of the things that they struggled with. Perhaps you find yourself in this, to be tempted by this. They were struggling with following the different celebrity pastors of their day. Second Corinthians tells us that. Some followed Apollos and some followed other people. They embraced, they were struggling with embracing this Roman Greco culture which was marked by classism and people who had money, people who were Gentiles or Jews. So they had all kinds of issues dealing with the culture they were living in to fall into the trap of living in the culture and of the culture. They were suing one another. This church they had arguments with one another, and they, instead of trying to work it out, they would go out into the public square and sue one another. Great witness, right? They were excusing gross immorality and sexuality. Not only were they excusing it amongst their myths, they were also pursuing it as a church. They were misguided about marriage and divorce and singleness. And if you think you can't mess something up in the church... Take something like the Lord's table, where we're supposed to remember what Christ has done for us. They were even messing the remembrance of Jesus and his death and resurrection up. They were messing it up. They were making it about a meal. You see how off their priorities were when you look through and just skim through this book. And they were also prioritizing the gifts that God gave the church to build the church up, to serve the church, 
They were taking the show-stopping gifts and making them central to life in the church as if to say these gifts were varsity and if you have these gifts, you're on varsity. If you have these gifts, you're on JV. They were getting a lot of things wrong. And so when Paul says in the first few words here in chapter 15, I would remind you of what's first importance. They needed a reminder. You ever been there? You need a reminder of the essential truths of the gospel. This is where they were. So Paul reminds them of the centrality of the gospel in their lives. They had forgotten where they stood. Can I ask you a question this Easter morning? Are you living with the gospel in front of you and beside you? Are you living with the gospel in your rear view mirror? It's a question you ought to ask yourself. Maybe it's just the cares of life and the concerns of life that have drowned out the gospel in front of you and the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Maybe it's that or maybe it's like the Corinthians. You see that in verse 2 where he says, and some of you may have believed in vain. Maybe the Christian faith for you is just a decision that you made when you were 8 years old. But there's been no change. There's been no focus change. You're just forgetful because maybe you really didn't ever believe. Is the gospel in your rearview mirror this morning? Here's the thing. Here's the thing about being forgetful. And you can think about areas of your life where you're forgetful or you get sidetracked. But usually forgetfulness and getting sidetracked has to do with a lack of priority in something. We'll, we'll test this out right now. Do you know where your phone is right now? Do you know where your wallet is right now? I bet everyone in here knows exactly where their phone is and their wallet is. Do you know where your Bible is right now? I know, Easter Sunday morning, guilt from the pastor this morning. Hey, I didn't go to the lost and found and call out names and say, so-and-so, come get your Bible. But see, forgetfulness is often connected to a lack of priority. I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll rattle myself for a minute. When we take a trip as a family, we pack up and we leave and we take a trip, I'm a list guy, I don't know about you, I'm the guy that has the list and so I try not to forget anything, but I forget some things. But there's, there's some things that I might forget. The dog leash, I always forget the dog leash. I usually forget the camera, the good camera, not my camera on my phone. Um, I might forget my toothbrush because I brush my teeth in the morning and I forgot it, or my reading glasses, I might forget that. But there's something I never forget. I never forget it because it's in my truck, and I'm always ready with this thing to do this. We usually, kids are getting older, and so they're bigger, and so we usually take the truck. I never forget my golf clubs, y'all, ever. I never forget my golf clubs. You can, if golf is on the menu for the trip, the golf clubs are ready to go. I can forget all kinds of other things, but it's a priority for me, so I don't forget it. I want you to think about things in your life that you don't forget. I brought up the fact that last summer, this past summer, it's July, we look out the back window and our shed is on fire because of our neighbor. I've gotten a lot of use out of sermon illustrations from this. The neighbor burned some things in the backyard and under some pine trees and some kindlings, some pine needles when the wind was blowing 20 miles an hour toward my house. And we look out and the trees in his backyard are engulfed and our little shed in the backyard is like four foot off the fence and his whole backyard's going up in flames and the wind's blowing on ours, our shed's on fire. Listen, I'm going to tell you what I didn't do in that moment. Let me tell you what I did do in that moment. I told my kids, go to the neighbor's house. Go to Miss Cindy's house. And my wife was already fighting the fire. 
And I said, go over here. I'll try to take care of this with my little pea shooter thing. The fire is massive. You know what I didn't do in that moment? Go with me. You know what I wasn't doing when all, like hundreds of neighbors were coming around? I wasn't working on my short game with my golf clubs. I wasn't doing that because this was most important in that moment. And I think what's happening here with Paul as he's dealt with all these little issues in the Corinthian church and he's taken each one and he's talked about it, he finally comes to the place where he says, look, it's like you're doing that in your backyard when life is going nuts, when there's a fire in your life and what you need to put that fire out is the gospel, the truth of the gospel in your life. And all these little things would change. I don't know about you, but man, I'm forgetful. I'm forgetful about, I'm, I'm your pastor, but I'm forgetful about what's most important. I'm forgetful about my faith. I get sidetracked on other silly things. And my faith is not often most important, but Paul's saying come back to what's most important as you live out the, your faith. We're forgetful. We major in the minors. We need reminding. This is why the Bible, this is why Jesus says, remember me. Take communion. Take of the Lord's Supper. Remember me. That's why we take every Sunday morning to remember what Jesus has done for us on a cross. That's why we gather together in person to meet so that we're reminded as we preach and as we sing of the truths of God's word because we are forgetful people. We're a sidetracked people. We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. So, if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, the gospel is always a sweet reminder. It's always the way in which you and I can follow Christ in all the mess of life and all the misplaced priorities. But if you're here this morning, and maybe you got drugged here by family or friends, and you don't yet, or you just don't yet know Jesus. Here's the thing. You can afford to get a lot of things wrong in life. You can afford to get a lot of things wrong in life. You cannot afford to get the gospel wrong. And verse 3 tells us why. Look at verse 3. Why the gospel is of first importance. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus and what he's done. It tells us our problems. It tells us what Christ has done for our chief problem. Look at it in the second part of verse 3. And this is your second point. You can't afford to get it wrong because for the guilty, see, God provides a way of pardon. That's your second idea. He provides a way for you to be forgiven. If you're guilty and you're in need of forgiveness before God, He provides this way. Look at it. It says that in ver at the end of verse 3, it says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That's a huge phrase right there. It didn't say that Christ just died. It didn't say that Christ died and was a good prophet. It didn't say that Christ died as a good example. It said that Christ died for a purpose. And that purpose was for your sins and my sins. For our sins. What sin? Sin is missing the mark. It's actually this archery term of missing the bullseye. And the bullseye is perfection because God is a holy and just God. He's holy and perfect. And there's no way we can hit that mark. There's no way we can hit that mark with anything that we do. And even who we are because of Adam and because of our sin. It's not only our behavior, it's also built into our DNA because of the fall. And the Bible says it this way, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That none are righteous, not even one. And then it tells us the result of sin. 
what we earn because we're sinners. It, it says that we're, the wages or what we earn for sin is what? Death. That's the consequence of our sin. And yet Jesus doesn't fall short. Jesus doesn't fall short. He's the God-man. He's without sin. Because God requires, as a just God, a penalty to be paid for our sins. You wouldn't want a judge to let someone off who wronged you. God is a just judge and he has to punish sin because he is holy. And he required sacrifice, but he required an appealing sacrifice. One who would take your place and mine. There's no way that that can be you. There's no way that that can be me. But Christ has done that for us. He's granted us pardon at the ex- his own expense. This is what the Bible teaches all, all the way through the Bible. You see it in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah is talking about the Messiah to come. And he says that that Messiah will die in our place, that he will bear our griefs, he will bear our sorrows. The iniquity of us all will be laid on him. This is the idea that Jesus is a substitute. He died in our place because God is holy and he is just and he requires sacrifice. And Jesus is the only fitting sacrifice. So for the guilty... There's a path here. There's a path here for your sins and my sins to be forgiven. Romans 5.8 says it this way, but God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 1.4 says a similar thing, that he gave himself up for our sins. Titus 2.4 says he gave himself us, up for us to redeem us from our sins. See, Christ is our substitute, but Christ is something else. He's also our advocate or our mediator. He represents us in front of God. Think about that. He's our representation. Whenever you get in trouble, you get a lawyer, and they're your representation. Christ is your representative before a holy God. But last, and this is beautiful, He is the Savior. He's the one who grants you forgiveness and delivers you from sin, and grants you eternal life. This is what Jesus has done. So for the guilty, there's a path for forgiveness. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're saying, yeah, okay, well that applies to guilty people, but I'm not really that guilty. I'm a good person. I take out my neighbor's trash. When they leave it out, I I pull it back, I come to church, I give, I do all these things, and I'm better than the, the person sitting next to me. And so I will decide... If I'm good enough or not. You ever heard of Babe Ruth? Sports fans? Baseball player? Pitcher? Batter? Old school? One time he was up to bat. Had a couple balls on him. Had a couple strikes on him. The pitch came and he thought it was a ball so he didn't swing. And the umpire calls him out. And the whole crowd goes nuts at the umpire. And Babe Ruth turns to the umpire and says, There are 40,000 people in the sands that know that was a ball. And the umpire turns to him and said, yeah, but my opinion's the only one that matters. You're out. Go sit on the bench. See, my opinion about my guilt doesn't really matter. It's God's opinion that matters. And God says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life comes through Christ. See, this is why you can't afford to get the good news of the gospel 
wrong. See, the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. See, you're not, none of us are as bad as we could be. I'm not as bad as I could be. You're not as bad as you could be. But we're all as bad off as we could ever be without Christ. See, there's no greater question you have to answer in this life than that which has eternal significance. So I would ask you this morning, have you believed that the Savior Jesus takes your guilt and your sin upon himself that you might be forgiven? Have you believed in that truth this morning, this Easter morning? It changes everything. So for the forgetful and the sidetracked, He brings clarity of what's first importance. And for the guilty, Jesus offers forgiveness. But what about the doubting? What about the skeptic? What about the person who looks at the cross and looks at the resurrection and goes, I don't know if I buy it. Look at what he says here in verses 4 through 8. See, for the skeptic, what the Bible says is there's some evidence. For the skeptic, that's your third idea. For the skeptic, there's some evidence. There's some evidence here in this text. I want you to look at verses 4 through 8. A little background at before we look. Verses 4 through 8. Corinth is in a Greek place. You know what the Greeks thought about life and death? Once you died, you died. That was it. And they would laugh at people who would talk about a future and a resurrection. There was nothing past the grave. And so Paul's writing to the Corinthians who have that background. who don't believe that there's anything after the grave. And so some of them were likely struggling with the idea of a resurrection at all. And so here we are, and he gives some evidence. Look at the evidence that he gives. He was buried. You see this, you know, it seems like an obvious point, right? An obvious point that if he died, he was going to be buried and, and go to the grave. But, but Paul makes the point that he was buried. Why does it matter that he says he was buried? Because he's writing to eyewitnesses who would have seen it who could verify it. And they're just trying to point out two things, really, that Jesus really died. That he really died, because that's one of the things that people will say, well, he really didn't die, he just got off. He really died to emphasize something else. He really did raise. There's something else in the day, especially Jewish law, it took two or three witnesses to verify, eyewitnesses, to verify something as fact. And so look at what Paul says. He said he appeared to... Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to five hundred at one time, most of whom are still alive. And so in other words, they're still alive. So guess what? If you're doubting or you're a skeptic in that day, what you could do is go down to Jerusalem and have coffee with somebody who saw Jesus alive, who saw him after he died, and verify this truth. And last of all, he appeared, he appeared to James, and then he appeared to Paul on Damascus Road. So evidence, there's some, evi- some evidence here, not all evidence here, because the nature of faith is reasonable, but there's no seal to it. There's evidence here, there's three things that I would point out. There's a lot more than this. I can give you books and books and books of hard evidence that support the historicity of the resurrection, that support the truth claims that the Bible represents. But an empty tomb, I sit here 2,000 years later, we sit here 2,000 years later and say, the tomb was empty. The body, if the body was there, they would have found it. If they would have found it, Christianity 
would have been dead in the water right there. The revival would have been over. I know what you're thinking and I'll get to it. Somebody came and moved the body. Maybe that's your thought. Well, it's also the trumped up thing that, that the Pharisees came up with as well. But we'll get to that in just a second. So there's an empty tomb that you have to deal with as hard evidence. There's also eyewitnesses. And there's time in which these truths were proclaimed. They were living. So when 1 Corinthians was written... They could go back, like I said a second ago, they could go back and verify and talk to people and say, I really did see this. I really did see Jesus after he died, that he was raised. And last, which relates to the idea, the first idea that they just moved his body. I want you to think about the disciples for a minute. I want you to think about them when Jesus went to the cross and was delivered up. Where did they go? They were scared. They were fearful. They denied they even knew him. They went to the upper room to hide. And then Jesus appears to them in the upper room. And Thomas is saying, I want to see the nail scar's hand. He appeared to them in Galilee. He appeared to the women. He appeared to the men on the road to Emmaus. And they completely changed their tune. So here's the deal. People die all the time for a truth they believe in. Something that they believe to be true. But nobody dies for a lie. Something they know to be false. And here you have these disciples. Who all of them but one gave their lives for the truth of the resurrection. People don't give their lives for something they know to be false. So the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, they gave their lives. Listen, this is some proof. It's not all proof. See, if you're exploring faith, or you're looking at faith, maybe as a kid you grew up in the church, and you're looking back and going, I don't know if I believe this. There's an element of faith to whatever you believe. So when you doubt Christianity, there's something that you're trusting in. But faith is certainly reasonable. Faith has evidence. Lee Strobel, I don't know if you know that name, he was an investigative reporter in Chicago and his wife became a Christian and he was an atheist and what began for him as a way to disprove Christianity led him to faith in Jesus there's this a few books that the guy's written the case for faith the case for Christ there's a movie out now I'd encourage you to look at it but here's his quote as he began to try to deconstruct Christianity and prove that the cross and the resurrection were just hype he says this after coming to faith I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life than I did when I was an atheist. He never promised me any such thing. Following him would actually bring me more divine demotion in the eyes of the world. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one true Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical step that I could take. That's what one man said about the evidence who studied it. And listen, I, I know that in a room like this, many of you have grown up in church. You've grown up hearing the story of Easter, Easter Sunday after Easter Sunday, learning the Word of God. And when you're a kid, you learn these right and good truths and then you grow up and then you have to come to a place personally where you say, do I believe this? And sometimes that happens in high school, sometimes it happens in college, sometimes it happens as a grown-up adult. 
Sometimes it happens when junk in your life happens where you look at this and go, do I really believe this? And there's this term that's going around these days, which can be an okay thing, called deconstruction, where people who have once believed in Christ are now questioning it, which God can handle doubt, by the way. He can handle that. You can bring that to Him. But one of the things that I, I think I see when people say, hey, I'm, I'm trying to deconstruct my faith so I can build something back, one of the things that I, I often see and even talk to people through is that they don't really doubt well. They don't doubt well or objectively. They take what they think Christianity is already in their mind and then they go out and find other sources and the only thing that they're relying on is their other sources rather than both sources. So they assume they understand everything about Christianity. And I would just say if you find yourself in a place where deconstruction is a thing, I would encourage you to doubt well, to look at evidence on both sides rather than assuming that I already know all this evidence toward the faith that I've grown up in. That's one mistake that people make when they doubt. The other one is that they don't doubt in community, that they just go off by themselves rather than having people around them to help interpret the life and the sorrows and the pains that they've gone through in life that they may need to understand, to see the layers of pain and hurt. Because oftentimes when we're by ourselves and alone, we put that in one place. So you need people, you need a community around you. They go, are you sure that is about Christianity or is that about the pain that you associate with it because of this in your life? So if you're doubting, you need to doubt well, you need to doubt in community. You need to doubt reverently. You need to doubt with Christ, not without him. Thomas, the example, he goes, I, I'm not going to believe unless I see your nail-scarred hands. He didn't run off and just doubt. He came to Jesus. He brought his doubts to Jesus, and Jesus showed him. So doubt with Christ, not outside of Christ. And last, I think this could layer over the three things that I just say. If you're doubting, doubt humbly. Doubt humbly if you're doubting Listen, you're placing your faith in something. So if you're doubting, you're placing your faith in something else as well. So doubt humbly. Know that your doubt comes from a place of faith in something. And you're not entirely objective. So as you doubt well, doubt humbly. Doubt in community, not on your own. Doubt reverently with Christ, not without him. So if that's a place that you're at. You're in a place where you're going, I don't know what I believe. Talk to somebody. Engage with people. Be honest. So I encourage you to do that. So for the skeptic, there's some evidence. There's evidence all through the scriptures about the truth of the scriptures, about the cross, and about the resurrection. So if you're a skeptic in the first century, Paul provided hard evidence. He provides it to us as well. He provides the death and burial and resurrection. For the guilty, he provides forgiveness through his son, for the distracted and the forgetful, a reminder of the centrality of the gospel in our life. And last, if you're fearful. If you're fearful, there's hope. It got really quiet in here. This thing comes on, it comes off, it got really quiet in here. For the fearful, there's hope. And this is the truth of Easter. The resurrection represents confident hope. Because here's the question that Easter asks and answers. What happens when I die? Is that not a question that we all want to know the answer, that we all fear death. But look at the text. Look here 
at the text that says in the middle of verse 4 that he was buried, and here it is, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. So for the fearful, there's the hope. If you keep scrolling just a little bit in 1 Corinthians, here's what you find. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, In Adam will all die, in Christ you shall be made what? You're made alive. So because Christ was raised, that's hope and promise that you too, when you die, will be raised anew. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, it says, We will be changed. When we die, we will be changed. If we know Jesus, we will be raised imperishable. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, To be absent with the body... Help me out, is to be present with the Lord. John 15, I go to prepare a place for you. So when you die, if you know Jesus, you are with the Lord. And the evidence and the assurance we have of that is that Christ was raised. That's the teaching of Scripture. So the problem is, what happens when I die? Is it just ashes to dust? Is there life after death? Job said it that way. He said, if a man dies... Will he live again? That was the question of Job in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in all of our hearts. So these are questions that we're going to ask. See, because of the empty tomb, God's got the last word on life and on death. So, if you think about it this way. If the thing that you and I will fear most, that man will fear most, see also the last year in a pandemic... In a scenario where we don't know if this thing is going to kill people or if they're going to live, think about the fear that has happened in your own heart or around you because the possibility of death. Think about that fear. I can't think of a a bigger fear in life than death. And so if that fear is taken away because of Christ and His resurrection, guess what? All the other fears that you have in life, pale in comparison to that one. The fears of, for a nation, those are real. Fears of your, in your community and what life is going to be like, job, you name it. The fears that you have about life and death, the fears that you have, and whatever they are, God can handle those fears. God can take those fears for you. See, the resurrection gives us a confident hope that he has a purpose behind what he's doing here. It gives us hope that when we die, that we will be with him in heaven. As I close here, there's a story of two boys. A story of two boys that grew up in a Muslim home. They grew up in a Muslim home and learned about Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, even visited their grave, the prophet's grave. And they believed in this. And then one day a Christian missionary came and shared the gospel with them, and spent a lot of time in their community. And one day, the two boys were talking about this, and one of the boys turned to the other and said, so what do you think? Are you going to believe in Muhammad, or are you going to believe in Jesus? And the other boy thought about it for a minute, and he says, you know what? I think I shall believe in the living one. I think I shall believe in the living one. See, the best news that you can know this morning or every day starts in a bloody cross, but ends with an empty tomb. Your takeaway today is there is good, good news 
Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He's risen indeed. And here's the thing, it changes everything. It changes the verdict on your life that's on top of you without Jesus from guilty to forgiven and pardoned. It changes the verdict. It changes your life today. It gives you hope instead of fear. It gives you clarity of purpose and direction. And ultimately, it changes your eternity. It changes your eternity. And so I would ask you this morning, if you're here, and you don't yet know Jesus, I would ask you the question that Jesus asked the people that were following him. Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question. It's a first importance. It's the most important question that you could ever ask or answer. You can get a lot of things wrong in life. You can't get the gospel wrong. So I invite you to consider Christ this morning. I invite you to consider that he has died on a cross for your sins. That you, there's no way that you can take your sins upon yourself and be right with a holy God, but He is your substitute. He is your representative before God, and He is your Savior. Would you consider that this morning? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful. Grateful for the work that You've accomplished and the power in which You've raised Your Son from the dead, that we could live in resurrection hope, that we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear the things of life. We have a confident hope in this life and in the next. And I pray for maybe one who's doubting here this morning. I pray that you would convince them through the evidence that you provide that Christ really is who he says he is and he really did what the scriptures say he did. Lord, I pray also for the folks here that need Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would see that forgiveness is freely offered to them and what Christ has done for them. And Lord, I pray for the one maybe here this morning, a Christian that is distracted, a Christian that is forgetful, I pray that they would recenter and recalibrate their lives to the gospel and see how it changes and clarifies the ups and downs, the good news and bad news of life. We love you and we thank you for an Easter morning where we can celebrate the risen Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.